Welcome into another edition of the Husker 24-7 podcast. I am Mike Schaefer, joined by Brian Christofferson, Michael Brunts. Gentlemen, let's just jump straight into some Nebraska black shirt talks. We're going to do it right now without any opportunity of seeing spring ball, not even necessarily knowing who's playing what position Give me seven guys that you are sure are going to get black shirts when they're first announced. Seven. Ben, seven. Ben Stilley. One. Uh, Jojo Doman. Two. Colin Miller. Three. Honus. Four. Deontay Williams. Five. Uh, Boodle. Six. Colin Miller. Did I say Miller already? Yep. For some reason, you're skipping multiple guys in the secondary. Uh, Dismuke, that's seven. Okay. BC, who are you going to add to that list? Uh, Cam Taylor Britt. Eight. Um, D-line's interesting. Garrett Nelson, I'm going to say uh, Garrett Nelson. Nine. That's, uh, Caleb Tanner's a iffy one. We'll see. Okay. Uh, D-line's iffy. Who who are we missing that's obvious on D line? Stilly's an obvious. There's anybody that's obvious beyond Stilly, though. I do think that Jordan Riley, Phil Darius Payne, DeAndre Thomas, and oh Thomas DeAndre Robinson. You're going to get two out of that group at some point. I think DeAndre Thomas will get one. Okay. And then, uh, hmm, I'm going to say Ty Robinson. I'm going to say, I think it's his turn. That's uh, that's eleven. You guys feel good about that eleven? Yeah. They feel like an eleven you can win six games with. I feel like they could get you to six, <laughs> seven if things break right. Well, I feel like Eric Chenander likes the promise of his group better than people on the outside, um, and it that that's truthful from him. Like he he really believes like the D line, despite the fact that they're replacing three guys who are at the combine. Um, I think he thinks they could be as good, if not better. Uh, now, that was before the spring, we, this mess we have now, where who knows, we don't even know if we're playing football yet, but you know, if there's practices, when they are, all that stuff, if you lose all your spring practices. But at that point, when spring started, I think he thought they could at least meet what they met on the D-line last year with the guys he has. All right, so you you were able to talk with Eric Shenander. You uh, you had some takeaways from that. We will get into some defense right off the right off the bat here. I, here's the thought that I've had for a while. I've voiced this on this show, on my show, on other shows to a guy at the grocery store slider multiple times, though he's generally disinterested in the conversation. I feel like Eric Shenander has a bad rap because of what he inherited and it's unfair because they've gotten better each year that he's been here. They were better in 2018 than they were in 2017. They were better in 2019 than they were in 2018. And I think it's fair to assume they're going to be better in 2020 than they were in 2019. And in addition to all of that, and most importantly, he inherited the side of the, of the ball that was least prepared to run the system that it, it had and so it's taken them a while to stockpile some defensive talent I think that they still have a ways to go in that regard 
But think about how bad they were at the nose tackle position versus what they were in 2019 with Darian Daniels versus what they might be in terms of bodies with Ty Robinson, Keem Green, Damian Daniels, and Jordan Riley in 2020. I, I just think that we don't know quite yet what that defense can look like because they never had it at a point where it was firing anywhere close to all cylinders or the right personnel to run it. They still don't even have the outside linebackers that they ultimately seek in that defense. Well, if any history has held true, this is usually about the time when we get a new defensive coordinator, right? <laughs> like the, the, this, the, the, turnover in this program has been pretty remarkable on the defensive side of the ball when you really kind of stop and think about it. And that's just not the coordinator position. I mean, it's been a a rotating cast of characters for a number of years in the secondary at the defensive line. Like those are two positions where continuity really helps you. And and especially the defensive line. I mean, you, you, when, when they came in, you, you kind of had to restock the deck a little bit. You had to try to add more depth. You had guys that were recruited for 4-3 that were being shoved into a 3-4, and then they're playing in a different 3-4. I, I think that side of the ball will, will be aided by continuity. And I also think that when you start talking about this group specifically, I think the secondary has a chance to be very, very good because I think Travis Fisher is a very good coach, and I also think that they've done a really nice job of recruiting guys who are not only talented, but also fit the system that Nebraska is going to run. And they haven't been able to do that and kind of build classes with any kind of consistency since, what, like John Papuchas and Bo were basically running mm-hmm. the defense? Is that fair? Yeah, there's been a lot of turnover. And um, when Eric Chenander arrived here – I like the Davis twins. I love their personalities. I love their potential at the NFL game, but they weren't fit for that scheme necessarily. Um, And they've been recruiting guys with frames that I think are uh, more conducive to what they're trying to run in the three, four scheme on the defensive line. And I think that's part of the reason for Eric Chenander's optimism that they can get it done in the trenches because they've got guys who are more of with kind of the, uh, the measurements of what they want altogether. Um, but they've got it. They went back to the drawing board. They're, uh, they, their plan going into spring ball, and this might be adjusted now, was they were really going to simplify things. This is what Eric Chenander talked about at the uh, roundtable. They were going to lessen the installation they put in. Uh, they're going to lessen the verbiage that guys had to deal with. And they were going to really work on just their base defense and nailing that down where guys were uh, playing more with their technique instead of trying to memorize calls is the way he put it, where your guys are out there trying to memorize, oh, this is what I do here. And, you know, they had their linebackers doing some kind of crazy things that, you know, they, they were maybe having to do stuff outside of the box that maybe didn't fit their skill sets. And they, I think we're going to try to simplify that. Now, where this gets interesting is if uh, they don't come back till July or the first practice is in, in August, and we're hoping that's the case at least, um, they're going to have to cram a lot in with a lot of uh, guys who haven't necessarily played in certain spots. And everybody's going to be in that situation. But it is going to alter the plan that I think this coaching staff had perhaps uh, for their team 
you know, where they, they thought they could just get the base stuff done in the spring and then work from there in the fall camp. Now you're going to have to pile a lot on top of each other probably in a shorter period of time. But that's the way it is all across the country. So Nebraska's base defense last year as the season went on, they actually were okay in base. Yes. Um, so that they has to tell you that especially in the Iowa game, and really it's kind of – I'd have to go back and look at a conversation I had with, with Jack Cooper, but it may have started at points in the Wisconsin game that they got out of that bye week where they lost to Purdue and they went back and played a real heavy base against Wisconsin. They gave up yards. They gave up points. But they they felt like they did well overall. Maryland, they did very well with it. And then Iowa, when they got out of base, Iowa killed them. When they went back to base, Nate Stanley couldn't really do anything. And then the end of the game, they weren't in base anymore. Nate Stanley moves the ball. They kick the field goal. History's history. But um, I didn't mean to completely cut you off there. But there's – there was a belief at the end of last season that they were at their very best when they were just sticking in their base defense and really dialing down sub packages, which is, is interesting because I think that's also at the time when they moved DiCaprio Boodle to safety. Um, and that might've helped some communication issues they were having on the back end as well. Brian, did, did Chandra kind of get into Deontay Williams? Because I feel like, yeah, his loss last year was – it was something that was kind of – I don't think they wanted to make excuses with it, but, I mean, that, that was a big loss for what they wanted to do defensively. and It limited who they could move around in some of their packages, but did he kind of get into that a little bit more about maybe, you know, what getting him back this spring and, and this coming season means to that defense? Yeah, it killed him last year. Um, and he said that he was probably – their best offender going into the season. I mean, we were hearing all about him in fall camp. He was making all these plays last year. And uh, you take away that guy, and then you have to move Cam Taylor-Britt to safety, which Eric Chenander will tell you is not his best spot. He likes him as a corner, a pure corner, or a slot corner. And so what they really want to do now with Deontay back, who they say is it's like riding a bike for him. He's he, the first practice when he got back out there, they did have two practices. They said he was making all the calls and running around like he owned the joint again. So that's a good thing. But what they want are three or four safeties that they can rely on. That would be Deontay Williams, Markel Dismuke, and insert names here. You know, who can be those other guys? Like Miles, Miles Farmer. Miles Farmer. And uh, Taylor yeah. Britt or DiCaprio Boodle, depending on where they line them well, up. Well, they don't. That's the thing. They want three or four safeties without having to use Taylor Britt or Boodle if they can. They'd he'd like to keep those guys at corner if at all possible. So that's the hope is that the, a couple young guys step up to solidify the two deep at safety beyond Deontay and Markel, and then you can keep Taylor Britt and move him around as a slot corner, regular corner. Uh, you've got Braxton Clark and Quinton Newsom adding depth at corner. Suddenly, you've got a really strong two deep of guys. Not you're not playing musical chairs if if safety can if young guys can step up at safety. Was there at least from the offensive guys I talked to? There was quite a bit of reflection about 
you know, look, we went back, we really dug into what we did a year ago and, and really self-scouted. I mean, that, that's what the offensive side of the ball did with the time that they would normally be practicing for a bowl. But did you hear from him that that's kind of what they did defensively or how did they kind yeah. of approach the, the going through things from a year ago? I think I got the sense from that press conference, and I interesting what you guys say, that they self-scouted more than ever before and were looking in the mirror probably more than they ha- ever have about we might have to change some things. So, some, you know, you, you kind of, they had done stuff that went back to their UCF days that had worked for them, you know, a certain way, but it hasn't all worked out here. So there's some stuff you have to scrap. And I think the biggest part was what I kind of what I was saying at the beginning, simplifying across the board, offense and defense. That was what this spring was going to be about. It was going to be about mastering the basics and not throwing too much at guys, being very organized in what you do with the simple stuff. And then once you figure that out, you branch out from there. Yeah, that, uh, that makes sense. It fits in line with what you kind of heard from Travis Fisher. And then Mario Verduzco was the one that really hit the self-scouting thing. And he did it in the framework within, um, you know, Matt Lubick being the new offensive coordinator and how impressed he was by Lubick sort of already having suggestions and notes and having watched uh, a fair amount of Nebraska and, and coming in pretty hard on, on some things he thought didn't work or things he thought they didn't take advantage of and, and stuff like that. So that's good. Um, it all falls under the category of stuff that fans just probably want to see uh, more than they want to hear us bloviate on it. But it, those are some of the takeaways that we, we obviously had. Uh, Brunts has his finger in the air, so we're going we're gonna to redirect here. Brunts, yes. I, I, have, an, I have another defensive question. I, I, I wasn't there for the Chandler conversation. Did, did he get a pass rush at all? I mean, that, that's the thing that we hear a lot from fans is, is how can you generate a pass rush? How can you be disruptive? And who's going to do it? Because I, it's, it, it's something that you know, not only this staff has struggled with, but you know, the previous staffs too is finding guys that, that can get after the quarterback. You know, I don't think we talk specifically about the pass rush, which is probably an omission on part of the media that was there, but he was saying so much interesting stuff about other things. I guess it, it just, the time got away from us before we got to that. What was interesting to me was hearing him talk about, well, let's just use Jojo Doman as the example. Uh, Jojo has been a freelancer at Nebraska. Um, and it has worked for him sometimes. And a lot of us, including me, who it's like, watch the ball. We're drawn to Jojo because um, he'll make these ball hawking plays where we're like, okay, that's a guy who's getting stuff done. But as Eric Chenander pointed out, that freelancing um, has opened him up to just as many busts probably as plays that stick out to us. Some of those 30, 40 yard plays, it's not just Jojo, but he's an example of a guy who Eric Chenander has really challenged, do your job, you know, stay within the framework of what we're asking you to do. And we're going to be better off for it instead of just, you know, kind of trusting your instincts all the time to just, I mean, there's, there's a place for that, but you got to be careful with it. And so that's going to be a big thing for Jojo is if he can uh, kind of buy into the framework of the defense um, and then there's other guys like Markel Dismuke and DiCaprio Boodle, who Chenander will point out that he loves because uh, 
he says they he, those guys do what he wants them to do. Yeah, they might miss a tackle on a play, or there might be a physical play where they mess up and it doesn't go as planned. But mentally, they're always uh, in line with what they're being asked to do. And so it, it was interesting to hear a coach kind of get inside who actually does their job well more of the time and who needs to probably be more consistent with that. It is good stuff. It is very good stuff. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're getting the wheel out, and that means the discussion could go anywhere. First of all, it means you're going to hear the wheel noise, which is what everybody loves about this podcast at this point. But it also means you're going to hear some really strong analysis from your favorite Puskel podcast. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. New CBS Monday. NCIS. Here's where we can see them. NCIS and NCIS Hawaii return with all new cases. Double tap to the chest, one to the head. These guys are professionals. All new criminals. Violent island, they got here. Walk to paradise. And all new crimes to be solved. If you're watching this, I've been arrested. What are the charges? Just one. Murder. New NCIS and NCIS Hawaii. Monday starting at 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. And we're back. All right, Brunce, do you have the wheel out? Do you, uh, do you even put it away anymore? Or does it just sit downstairs in your basement ready to go at all times? This, this wheel has become a fourth member of this podcast, so it's, it's always around. Should we get its own microphone? Uh, I don't think we need to go to that length, but... <laughs> Can it have oh. its own video feed? Oh, there it goes. Man, you really spun that sucker. Yeah. It's been practicing. Uh, a few new topics on the uh, on the wheel this week as it continues to spin, and you know it, it's uh, we're gonna it's gonna be interesting when we get to like June what, what the topics are. Jeez, is it so, ever gonna stop? No, nah, it just keeps going. Oh, there it is. Um, okay. So this week's topic via the wheel, which college football program is the next Clemson? And this the wheel just stole my message board topic. Yeah. <laughs> Engraved and everything. Um, so you're updating this thing constantly. Yeah. The wheel never stops. So um, that was your, you, you can explain the question since it was stolen from you. Well, so I view, I view it like this every four to five years in college football, since basically you go back to Nebraska's run in the nineties. And, and it goes beyond that, but that's as far as my general brain can take it because that's what I was alive for. You have different teams that pop up. So, it, you know, it goes Nebraska, and then you had OU Miami, and then you had USC had their run, and then Florida after that, and then Alabama, and now Clemson. And so what I'm wondering, is there a team that you see in college football right now that <clears throat> maybe on the precipice of breaking through that ceiling – and uh, we know that Ohio State is really good. We know Alabama's already there. We know LSU just won a national title. I mean, you could go with, with those teams if you wanted to, but is there somebody else out there that you think is, is close to 
turning the tide and, and potentially taking the mantle of best program at the moment? Everybody go. Well, no. you were nodding your head, so we're going to go with that. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, this team's been close in the past. Um, and I, I, I think the Pac-12 is going to be down for a while. Um, I think that Oregon has a chance to potentially rise up into being a top four type team in the college football playoff. And I, I say that because Oregon still has the cool factor. Um, you know, the, the uniforms have kind of been, you know, they've done that for a while, but they still recruit nationally. They still pull talent in from all over the country. And, you know, I, I think the thing that Oregon has found and with, with this latest hire, I think Mario Cristobal is a pretty smart guy. Like, I think that he is able to – they can do the speed stuff and whatever because they've got those athletes. But they, if you, if you watch them play, they run some power, which Oregon maybe hasn't in the past. And the biggest problem up there to me is that you just haven't had enough consistency with coaching up there to really take advantage of that. So I'll say Oregon, I, you know, USC, I think is probably looking at another coaching change depending on what happens there. Uh, I, I don't really see anybody else. You don't think that Clay Helton's going to stay in limbo for the third year? <laughs> I, I would, uh, it would be fun if he did. Uh, but, you know, I, I just think that, you know, the, the one problem that I'll say that Oregon's going to have is they're going to have to practically run the table every year in the Pac-12 because that's the only way they're going to get any kind of respect out there, uh, they, any respect they nationally. They have a good schedule. They schedule well. They played Auburn last year in a neutral game. They're, they're hosting Ohio State this year. They're going to Ohio State next year. Like They at least challenge themselves in a way that Alabama refuses to do so. They do. I mean, the, the problem is, is that – you know, you have one hiccup against like Arizona State or something like that, and you're you're just done in, in the minds of a lot of people nationally. So I, I think the the ingredients are there. We'll see if they can kind of uh, mix everything together and come out with something that looks good. BC, you got one? Okay. I'm going to take this question with the framework of – I'm thinking back to Clemson like 15 years ago. Um and by that, I mean, remember when Clemsoning was a term? Do you remember that? It was like it was 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, I'm, I want to take a team that's kind of down a, down a notch, um, maybe below uh, the blue blood status. Oregon's a pretty good answer, although Oregon's been up there near the top pretty recently. So I'm going to say North Carolina. Um, <laughs> oh, Wow, Mac Brown. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think this oh. question. See, that's what I was getting at. I think this question is meant to take a chance. It's meant to take a big shot. Uh, when I think of like Clemson old school, I think of a team that was like seven and five routinely. I you know? I, I definitely get what you mean. Um, I I could have phrased it better. But it has more to do with me with just the team that kind of takes over the moment of college football. Like, I think you could make the case that Clemson has been, for the last five years, the program of college football. Yeah. Um, do you envision a scenario where North Carolina can do that? In the context of what I'm talking about, I think North Carolina has an opening 
to challenge in the ACC. I look at conf when I think about this question, I look at, at conferences where I say, okay, there's not that many teams standing in the way, which is why Bruns was making a good point with Oregon. Uh, the ACC to me has always been open for Miami to reignite itself. Um, you would, you would think uh, a, a program like Florida State, what are they fourth in recruiting or, or uh, North Carolina's fourth in recruiting right now? Yep, nationally? They're so they're recruiting nice. at a high level. And I just think they've got some momentum. I don't know that they're going to become a, a Clemson in the sense that they're in the national title game. That's maybe a step too far, but I do think you're going to see them in the next few years, be a program that is winning 10 games and is in the conversation. And I don't know how long that's going to last, but they're like my dark horse to do that. A few years ago, I might've said in a similar vein, like in Oklahoma state, I sort of thought was poised to do that, but I don't think they capitalized on the moment as much as I thought they would. Um, so I get that. I probably took the question a different route a little bit. No, that's great. That's but, great. Uh, I, just, I wanted to explain what I meant, I guess. Yeah. So you didn't feel like, it was a, an entirely different question altogether. No, I, I get both. I think you could go two different ways with it. So that's sort of my like wild card is like North Carolina. I think Brunson's answer is really good with Oregon. Um, I don't know. Penn, some would say Penn State has kind of lingered where they're waiting to make they're it right there. Move. You could argue uh, they've been Clemsoning themselves the last couple of years by not finishing off Ohio State when they had yeah. opportunities to do so or losing randomly to Michigan State yeah I think Penn State could be a possible answer um I a, a lot of people probably would have bet on Texas A&M when Jimbo first went down there but I don't know if right now at this moment you're feeling strong about that I don't know if I am I don't think so I, I think that Texas A&M is positioned to be really good the problem is and it's the same reason why I don't think LSU is going to have a dominant run is to get out of that SEC West now. You have Alabama, Auburn, LSU, and Texas A&M. Like, you have to be really, really good. And I don't know if last year's Clemson team would have been able to survive that stretch of play uh, based on how they played against the ACC at times. But they were able to get to the national championship because they beat Ohio State, they won the games on their schedule, and then they lost to LSU. I have a couple teams um, – you mentioned one of them in Texas A&M, but I'll shy away from that one and go with this. What if we just eliminate conferences altogether and we go with the nation's biggest independent school, Notre Dame? I think Notre Dame, with their fact that they have that light tie-in to the ACC that fills part of their schedule, will get the sort of advantage that Clemson does where you're playing Power 5 teams, but you're not getting the SEC West as Alabama and at all those other programs that I just mentioned, Brian Kelly had a really interesting off season, um, which isn't the first time that phrase has ever been said based on what's happened at Notre Dame with Brian Kelly. But he, he had some remarks about changing the way that he recruits based on what he's seen in games when they played Clemson and Alabama for the national championship. And when they've gone against some of these top teams, he Felt like he's been shorthanded specifically in the secondary. They're changing the type of athletes that they're looking for a little bit on defense. I think that's really sort of important. And I just think that they have a opportunity where in years in which they're not lined up with Clemson, they can play that ACC schedule. I don't think USC is going to make a giant rise anytime soon. 
I think they'll still schedule difficult. And so their, their computer numbers and their eye test numbers will look good. Uh, but if they land the right quarterback and they continue to adjust and, and add athleticism on defense, I think that, that Notre Dame could be a really, really big powerhouse but I've also felt that for a little while. And so it, the window might be closing for them too. But just that the fact they're not constricted by any one conference always keeps it open a little bit for them. Thoughts on Notre Dame? I'm looking up what their record has been the last few years to see, because they've been like a perennial 9-10 win team, right, under Brian Kelly? They had, they had that one really bad year with Deshaun Kaiser um, where they went, I think, 4-8 and eight or 5-7, and seven, something like that. And then they um, – have otherwise won right around nine or ten games. I went to the college football playoff two years ago and got smoked by Clemson in the the semifinals game. Last year, I think they were a ten-win team. They beat up Iowa State in the Camping World Bowl. Uh, so they – no, nine-win team? No, you're right. No, I was shaking my head at the Camping World Bowl. Um, <laughs> so the, in the last few years, they've gone 11-2, and 12-1, and 10-3, and three. Four and eight, ten and three, eight and five, nine and four, twelve and one, and then eight and five and eight and five under Brian Kelly. So they've been close. Yeah, but it's interesting that he has come out and said like there's there's different things that he has to do to get them over the hump in recruiting and different players he needs to either take a chance on or. You know, it fits into that self-scouting conversation we just had with Nebraska. And I think that kind of self-awareness is only going to aid as they try to go forward. Um, trying to think if there's any other – pro. I, I think Florida – I really like Dan Mullen. I think being on the easier side of the SEC could really help out. I think that Florida is going to pass Georgia as kind of the power on that half of the conference. Uh, what do you guys think of the Gators? I think the Gators are a good pick. Um, I think, yeah, I think Florida is going to be a top five team, top, top 10, at least the next th three years or so. I, I really think they've established themselves. Florida state. They, I, I don't feel like the way back for them is nearly as long as maybe what the assumption is. Like obviously Willie Taggart was a bad hire, but I think, I think Norvell is a good coach and I think that they're going to, I think they're going to score a ton of points. Um, and I, you know, whether they can start to win some of those in-state recruiting battles, we'll see. But I mean, the ACC is not exactly stocked. I mean, you've got Brian's North Carolina Tar Heels and, and Clemson, but I mean, it feels like to me, the ACC is probably the easiest route outside of the PAC 12. Cause I, I think you still get a little benefit of the doubt in the ACC if you lose a game. Are, the one I was just trying to think of, is there anybody in the Big 12, like is outside of like Baylor, like is Baylor an option? Well, you could you could maybe argue Texas and and if they get the right people, Tom Herman has had some success. I The program that fascinates me the most in the Big 12 right now, and I don't think they're going to be like challenging for national titles, but I think they're going to be a big pain in the ass for for Texas and Oklahoma. Apologies for people that heard the A word there. Sorry. Um, I think that Kansas State is going to be just utterly annoying to those programs with the way that they will play football with what Chris Kleiman will do. I Again, I would very much hesitate to put them on the national landscape, 
But I think we're headed to a period of time where Kansas State is a better version of what Kirk Ferentz has been doing at Iowa for years. I really so, do. So basically they're like uh, not when Bill Snyder had it really clicking, but kind of like uh, picking back up where they're always like 18 to 25 in the polls, something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. With the upside of potentially being a top 10 team. I mean, I don't know if they're going to have the Colin Klein type year, but I, I wouldn't rule it out. Like I, I think Chris Kleiman is really, really good. And I like everything that they're doing down there. And they obviously had a ton of success at North Dakota state. I don't think he has, you know, interest in going anywhere. We'll see if other programs, you know, come after him in the way that they tried to with Matt rule. Uh, but he's just, that program really fascinates me. And I think that would be bad for Nebraska in some ways, because if they're able to build up enough, then they're going to be able to recruit that Kansas city area. They will be able to come into Nebraska and, and Iowa and provide at least the context of being a perennial top 20 team that, you know, Manhattan isn't the biggest selling point in the world, but it's not the worst college town to have to go to either. Here's the other one I, I'd considered too, Utah. Like they, they're always seem like they're right on the cusp. I think Kyle yeah. Whittingham's a fantastic coach. They recruit well. Um, I like the way they play. And like, it always seems like there may be a couple difference makers on offense away from being able to kind of make that next step. But I mean, it, when I was kind of thinking of Oregon, the only other team I really had had, had in mind was was Utah as kind of that potential next. And, and, and they've been there, though, too. I mean, they, they've been around, you know, a 10-win team. But um, I don't know. I just – I like Kyle Whittingham, and I think he's a good coach. Who uh, – <laughs> what, what do you think about this as a, as a Brian Christopherson, North Carolina pick? You could go with Arizona State and Herm Edwards. They're recruiting really well. They are. They've, they've got uh, – they're recruiting Los Angeles really well. I'll be curious yep. to see what happens if Clay Helton finds his way out of limbo or USC finds its way out of limbo. Or if Dante Williams finds his way into a bunch of talent in that city, which he Dante, does everywhere he's been. Dante Williams just gets all 25 guys in the class out of the Los Angeles area. I don't think it's a great sign for Dante Williams as an assistant coach that Oregon didn't seem to mind that he – you know, that it didn't hurt anything they were doing from a coaching standpoint, but. Well, I mean, they, well, his dad's like pretty ill, right? That's why he moved. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also the opportunity that that's where he's going to spend most of his time recruiting. And that's the biggest game in town in college sports for Los Angeles when it's clicking. So, um, but I, Oregon really didn't seem to, that was interesting. I, I don't think they'll miss a beat at all with that so we'll we'll see what happens there all right I feel like we covered most of the uh the college football world there but I do appreciate that nobody said Manny Diaz and Miami are going to do anything soon because I I think they're headed to another coaching search I think that's probably why Brian was so confident in North Carolina North Carolina right <laughs> <up> there <laughs> doesn't DC look like the kind of guy that had that North Carolina hat with the blue foot and the heel and and everything like did you have one of those the white no, no, no. I did have North Carolina basketball shorts in college. Okay. But, uh, I mean, those are, those, are, those are sweet, though. So. Eric Montrose was huge back then. <laughs> it was – no, that was like the uh, – who was on that? Jameson. Yeah, it was, it was – uh, Vince Carter was like when I was in high school. Yeah. We're about the same age. Eh. All right. 
<laughs> he's, he's still going too, though. He was. He, he was. <laughs> oh, fantastic. All right. We want to wish everybody a good weekend and uh, practice that good hand washing and safe social distancing. Be sure to check out everything on the website. You can do that from home. You don't have to be near anybody to check out Husker 24-7. Well, plenty of content for you as we go through the weekend. Have a good one. We'll be back next week. documentary as we speak rap music on trial now streaming exclusively on paramount plus rap lyrics are playing an increasingly prominent role in criminal cases every song every lyric every video that you've ever been involved with they're going to use against you follow rap artist kemba as he explores the weaponization of rap lyrics in the criminal justice system this artistic expression is a confession i'm ready roll the tape watch the eye-opening new documentary as we speak rap music on trial exclusively on paramount plus head to paramount plus.com to try it free terms apply